Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change, or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi, I'm Tash McGill, and welcome to The Transformationist. One of the greatest gifts that travel gives us is that when we physically transport our bodies into a different world and culture, we often cannot help but be changed by what we see, because what we see, in fact, in front of our eyes is very different. On this week's episode of The Transformationist, Reverend Frank Ritchie is the minister of Wesleyan of Commoners Wesleyan Methodist Community in Hamilton, New Zealand, and he's joining us to talk about his very interesting life as a broadcaster co-hosting a uh, talkback radio show and also his work as a chaplain, serving people who work in the media. Um, I called him onto the show because of his interest in contemplative forms of spirit- Christian spirituality. Uh, and obviously he loves coffee and uh, many things creative. So thanks for taking the time to join us, Frank. It's great to have you here. It's a pleasure, Tash. Thanks so much for having me. Um, question, do I need to call you, can I just call you Frank or should I put the reverend in front of it? <laughs> just call Just call me Frank. Um, so t- tell me a little bit. Uh, you, you have this to me seems almost like a almost like a paradoxical tension. Um, mm. The media and people in the media are not necessarily known for being deeply spiritual, let alone um, let alone necessarily being of a contemplative Christian tradition. Uh, so ha- I'm really curious. You you work as a chaplain to that kind of sector of the industry, but you also have your own talkback radio show how did you find yourself doing that whilst also running a church (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a lot there's a lot there isn't there whenever I hear it said back to me I I think to myself yeah that's actually crazy Uh, why why do I do what I do I I have a love for media and whilst the whole contemplative side of Christian spirituality isn't predominant in the media and people often don't think of the media and Christianity as two things that go go well together. I actually I, I think the opposite. When I when I look at the media and in particular news media, I see something that reflects our prophetic tradition. So if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the the prophets of the Old Testament in particular, uh, you see a people who were very interested in truth telling. Uh, so they were uh, they weren't afraid to look at culture. They weren't afraid to call out power. They weren't afraid to tell the truth about where the culture was at. Now, of course, the difference with the prophetic tradition is that it would be then leaning on what God has said about culture and what God has said about society. And they would call out society and say, look, you don't line up with this. And if you carry on down the trajectory you are, here is where it's going to land for you. But I think the media does that to a degree. It holds a mirror up to us and we like some of what we see and we don't Mm -hmm. like some of what we see. So that truth telling is really, really important important. And if you want truth telling to happen in a healthy, positive way, you've got to look after the people who are doing it. So that's why I do what I do. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been um, recently deep deep diving into this aspect of media as the fourth estate. Um, the idea that there is the um, there's the legislative uh, side of government, there is the um, judiciary side of government. Um, and then, oh, there's one other that I can't remember. Um, but the idea that you have to have the um, the idea that you have to have something like the media or the function of journalism to basically um, tell people what's going on, tell give people some accountability and some transparency into into what's actually happening behind the scenes, so that people can participate appropriately in a dom- in a democracy. Um, so that's quite interesting. I never really thought about it like that before. Um, so, so, so that's a really, I mean, that's one really interesting slice of life. Um, t- tell me what your church is like. Oh, my church is, uh, is is small, and I like the fact that it's small. I keep get, I keep getting told that I shouldn't say that it's uh, small, but it is. Uh, it's a community. I think our whole congregation is about fifty people, and your average service will be uh, anywhere from twenty five to to forty people. And it, it's about slowing down. So uh, again, as a prophetic response to to culture, I think I look at the world around us and I see uh, I see people being really busy. I see a lot of uh, anxiety. I see a lot of depression. I see a lot of people who feel overworked. And then when I look at the the Christian spectrum, especially my own tradition, which would be evangelicalism, I come from an evangelical, largely charismatic background, which often I think feels busy and and adds to the noise of life. So commoners, uh, we set commoners up as a really simple community that allows people to slow down and to really learn to listen and connect with God. It's that contemplative element, learning to, to step away from the noise for a little bit, to reconnect with God, to listen again so that when we go back out into the life around us, we're in tune to whatever it is that he's doing around us. Wesleyan spirituality has this wonderful term uh, called provenient grace. It's just a theological term for saying that we believe that God is actually active in every single person, whether they recognize it or not. And we would say that our job is to listen to what God is up to and to connect with what he's already doing. But if, if our lives are crowded out by noise, the chances of being able to do that are really slim. So commoners is about helping people learn to slow down and learn to listen. Which doesn't sound too far away from, um, I mean, sort of a modern meditative practice, right? Yeah, totally. If, if people are familiar with um, things like mindfulness, uh, we, would, we would look a lot like that, wrapping some Christian tradition around it. So liturgy, stripped back liturgy, things like Holy Communion, uh, the stuff that you would, you would recognize in some traditional churches, but paired back quite a bit. Okay. All right. That sounds pretty interesting. Okay. So, so walk me to walk me through, um, walk me through the story of how you end up in the place that you are now, um, trying to talk about truth telling, um, trying to help people who do truth telling, um, in the media and then running a community of people for uh, running a community for people or leading a community, um, of people who are looking to slow down and to listen and to engage with a bigger story about what's happening in the world. Um, did you did you design this or or did you end up in this place as a response to something in particular or to a number of things? Uh, walk me walk me through the journey to how you end up where you are. 
Yeah, I, w- I would say I think that most of my life and most of what I do is a complete uh, a complete accident where I've <laughs> I've fallen into things. You know, when I when I was in uh, high school, I planned on becoming a radio announcer. So I, I thought radio announcers were really cool, and I thought it would be great to be uh, a radio announcer. But I stuffed around at school, so didn't didn't even consider uh, going to broadcasting school or anything like that. When I finished, I went off and became a painter and decorator. Um, but the arc of my life took me eventually into radio and conversation and, and truth telling through through Christian talkback, uh, which was a really formative time of my life. I look back and think, what well, what was I doing? I was in my uh, early to mid-20s when I got started and given an audience uh, as an opinionated young Christian. And through my <laughs> through my arc of uh, through my arc of um, radio, I got to the point where I was really interested in justice issues and what was going on around the world. And I, I felt like I was talking about it a lot, but there weren't there wasn't much substance to what I was saying. There wasn't much action to to back it up. So I ended up moving away from radio for a little while, or Christian radio in particular, and ended up working for a tear fund. Uh, which is a Christian international aid and development agency that many people in New Zealand would be familiar with, but maybe not not others around the world. Uh, and is that, that gave affiliated some- with Compassion. Uh, yeah, so in the United States, uh, Tear Fund has an agreement with Compassion International to handle child sponsorship. So if you're in the, the people in the states would be familiar with Compassion, and then Tear Fund does a bunch of other things alongside that child sponsorship. So it's involved in the fight against uh, human trafficking and slavery, disaster relief around the world. So the child sponsorship is one part of its one part of its bow. But for those in the states, that would be the the best connection. So right, okay. T- Tear Fund was a way to add some justice work to what I was doing. Uh, but I ended up having this experience in uh, 2012 where my work took me to Israel and the West Bank, Palestinian territories, for a few weeks. And I went in there. And if I was going to be really honest about what was subconsciously going on, I probably wouldn't have voiced it at the time. Well, I wouldn't have voiced it at the time. And most people don't when they get involved in this sort of stuff. But I I got there and uh, the wheels fell off my faith. And I would say it's because I was thinking the only reason that this conflict exists is because they haven't spoken to me yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I'd just like to say, if you were stuck on a desert island, would you rather be stuck on a desert island with a young opinionated Christian or an old opinionated Christian? Oh. Like, at, at what point does that change? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, though, because the old opinionated quest- Christian, you'll learn some good wisdom, but if you want to be able to have some good wrangling uh, till the day that you die on that desert island, then the young opinionated Christian's probably probably going to give you a good go. <laughs> So, so, so you were there to to you were there to uh, to single handedly resolve totally. the Israel Palestinian conflict, yeah, and save the save the world. I think I think most people who get involved in uh, international justice in some way that's probably what they're aiming to do: save the world. Uh, and eventually, you will hit a wall. And I I hit the wall over there. So I spent a couple of weeks listening to uh, Israelis who are affected by the conflict. I spent the time listening to Palestinians uh, visiting hotspots where where things were ready to explode, places like the old market in Hebron, where it could just go off at any time. And I got, mm. got to the point where I saw I saw no way forward. 
for the whole thing. Uh, things like the two-state solution just didn't look like it could happen at all. Um, and I couldn't see what the church could do to make a difference. I couldn't see how I could make a difference. And I think my faith had been based on this very analytical way of being and thinking through what I could achieve. What I was doing was everything. Um, so prayer w- took a back seat in my life, even though I would have verbally said it's the most important thing. And it was all about what I could achieve. And I remember sitting in the church in the nativity in Bethlehem, uh, the place where tradition has held for well over 1,500 years, uh, where they believe that Jesus was born. And the altar and the church sits on the cave where it was supposed to have happened. And you sit there at the altar and you can watch pilgrims come in uh, in their droves and they go down under the altar and they kiss the spot where where Mary was supposed to have given birth. Not sure if I'd want to be kissing uh, the spot where that took place, <laughs> but that's what they do. Oh, come on now. I did. I, I kissed the spot. Um, and I was sitting there and the, the priests, the monks uh, were doing their liturgy of the hours. So they were waving the incense around. They were chanting. You've got the old icons. You can smell the incense that seeped into the, the concrete walls. It was amazing. And I remember sitting there thinking, I should, I should pray because this conflict is really bad. I, I should pray. But I had, I had nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, I had no idea what to say. And I couldn't see what difference I could make. So I had no expectation that I was actually going to be able to do anything. Uh, No expectation that God could change anything. Didn't lose my faith in God, but it completely undercut. That moment of silence completely undercut everything for me. And I had this... um, intellectual curiosity when it came to things like liturgy and and Christian meditation and silence. But in that moment, those things became not just intellectual curiosities, they actually became a a need because there was nothing in my tradition that had an answer for that feeling of uselessness. Um, And so those things that I'd been intellectually curious about, they became the, the way to rebuild faith uh, in that in that moment, so then I spent time exploring that con- more contemplative form of, of spirituality uh, on my on my return. Do you think? I mean, and, and I I come also from uh, from an evangelical tradition, and one of the one of the challenges I think of there are many wonderful things, and I don't want to I don't want to overly criticize the evangelical um, movement. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty I could criticize <laughs> about the evangelical movement. But but one of the things, you know, I don't want to criticize it completely, but I do think one of the challenges, particularly for young people who are justice oriented, who who see the world around us and think, I've got to be able to do something about that, or our generation has to be able to do something about that. You know, I, I think the evangelical response to that has been very do, do, yeah, do, yeah. you know, if, if something isn't right, when you face a question or a crisis, um, then the provocation is always to do more, you know, pray harder, do another Bible study, mm. you know, join a mission group, go do some, some good deeds in the community. Um, you know, it's very action oriented, whereas the contemplative tradition, um, I think is much more, uh, it's, it's almost do less and sit yeah. with the pain. Do less and let the pain be a storyteller. Let the pain be a messenger. Um, follow that. Lean into you know all of the uncomfortable feelings um, to see where it takes you. And I think that's such an it's such a different way of thinking about 
how we encounter or what we do, how we respond when we encounter problems, when we encounter things that we can't, um, that we can't, you know, work our heads around. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that the the contemplative way of being proposes a different starting point for faith. So I think I think evangelicalism or what evangelicalism has become, because I think if we dive into some of the history of it, we'll find some really you find some really good healthy things. But I think the content, contemplative spirituality says it doesn't start with what you can do, and out of what you do, you unite with God. It says you unite with God, and then as you unite with God, you're compelled out into the world to act out of that act out of that unity so the first compulsion should be towards unity with God and then out of his, his reshaping of me uh, without even trying to do it you end up connecting with his story that's going on in the world all around you uh, those two things work together but it starts with that desire to be united with God I think there's something really interesting around that like the the, the centrality of the centrality of identity and oneness um, with God, there's much more of a there's much more of depending and depending, of course, on what your construct of God is. Um, you know the um, and I you know I recognise that for many people, for an increasing number of people, um, that question it's not that it's actually not that the question is not important um, mm. if they're not from a faith background. If anything, it's that the question is becoming increasingly important. You know, how do I relate to this idea of God, or you know, to the concept of God, or to God as as a being to be interacted with um, is more of a predominant question, um, but but depending on your concept of God, this idea of of human and divine interaction, um, and that that might be the pursuit that that might be the worthy thing to pursue, versus the outcome of that interaction, is I think the place where it, where it turns on its head and I think it's really interesting for me just watching the spiritual journeys of many of the people around me and even in my own life as I seek to become the best version of myself that I can be and I seek to understand what that looks like in my own spiritual life and coming from a Christian tradition you know I do have some some fairly um some fairly solid foundational ideas that I think still matter to me about that. But it's really interesting how much room for exploration there is in the contemplative tradition. Um, mm. there's, there's plenty of room. It feels like a very spacious way of exploring um, exploring my concept of God, of exploring uh, my concept of, as you say, you know, the story of God and the work that God is doing. Um, it feels like a very spacious place to explore that because it's centered mm. first and foremost on on a sense of my oneness with God as opposed to maybe the kind of the evangelical tradition that I grew up in, which is my otherness from God, you know, mm. and just how just how far removed I am as opposed to to how close um, I can draw, which I think is interesting. So how what what went through your mind, what was happening in that moment of um, I mean crisis, whether faith crisis or emotional crisis or physical crisis, crisis manifests itself in lots of different ways um, for for us. So, what were some of your experiences of that of that moment? I would say, I would say, uh, because everything was based around what I what I do, there was that, as I mentioned, there was that real sense of uselessness. There was a real sense of uh, helplessness, and uh, the 
the building that I'd constructed uh, is probably a good metaphor. The building that I can I had constructed that was my faith just got just got completely shattered, and so then I had to go and find. But without losing that sense of God and without losing that that belief in God, so I, then I had to go and find some different language or find some language that worked, which was where your talk of the breadth of the contemplative tradition I think is really good. There are two words that I that I found that you probably know really well um, that came to describe the different aspects of faith and the different cycles of faith for me, cataphatic spirituality and apophatic spirituality. Um, yeah, we'll get you to explain those. Okay. So <laughs> both of them both of them are about language. Uh, so cataphatic is about what we can know and what we can describe. It, it's positive. Uh, so I would say evangelical spirituality is ultimately cataphatic. It wants to cement things. It wants to know things. It wants to be able to describe things really well. Uh, so cataphatic spirituality would say that God is love, and it would say it with relative certainty. Apophatic spirituality, or the negative way, not negative being bad, but the negation of of things, uh, is a spirituality that is about silence. It's a spirituality that would say any concept that we can come up with about God is actually ridiculous. So it would say that uh, the statement God is love isn't true because we have constructs of what the word God means and constructs of what the word love means, and that both of those actually fall short of the reality of God. So it would say the only accurate statement that we can make is that uh, God is not hate. So it would offer a negation. But silence mm-hmm. is really important in apophatic spirituality. That place where it takes you, where faith ultimately takes you to the point where you can't say anything. And I was sitting in that silence in the Church of the Nativity. I was in that place. I didn't know how to describe it, but everything had just been torn away and it all felt ridiculous. That was apophatic spirituality playing out. So silence for me has become central as an apophatic practice. It's where I'm able to uh, sit and negate everything else. It says that my ideas about God are somewhat ridiculous, but I want to sit with God. It says that it doesn't matter if I am a good preacher, a good radio announcer, a good prayer, good Bible reader, good teacher, good husband, good father, that actually the only thing that matters is that I get to sit here with the unknown God, the God who is bigger than anything I could possibly conceive of. Uh, So discovering cataphatic and apophatic spirituality was a good way to understand the cycles of faith, with Jesus being the ultimate uh, cataphatic expression. So Christianity should, if it's healthy, cycle through both of those. And when we encounter the unknown God in contemplative spirituality, it should drive us to the person of Jesus, which is why Jesus is central to things like Ignatian spirituality and dwelling in the Gospels and learning about Jesus and seeing how Jesus interacts with with the Father, Um, because it's only there that we can discover something about this God who is ultimately completely unknown and unknowable without the person of Jesus. Uh, I think uh, probably the, the the most helpful way in my own journey of describing that has been um, has been to talk about learning the shape of the mystery I cannot know. You know, it, it's 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 kind of understanding where the edges of the mystery creep in and where they have their space in in my life. And and it's interesting that you talk about those as cycles of faith because I do think um, <clears throat> increasingly we have need of, or perhaps it's just imp- 
important to to state that you know that it's not a pendulum swing of one to the other, but rather you know sort of stepping intentionally stepping into both spaces mm. as the need you know as the need requires. I guess would be my that would be my way of practicing. Um, of practicing those cycles, you know, when do I need to be silent and when do I need to express something? Um, and often the expression I, I find more often than not, um, is the expression of what I, what I do not have an answer for, which, Mm. um, is really just, (laughs) yeah, which is many, many things. It's many things. And it's just, there's a sense um, in what you've just said that one will ultimately drive you to the other. So if we take the whole cataphatic, apophatic, or the ability to express something to God, and then those times where actually that just feels stupid. If you if you listen to a lot of the songs that we sing in churches, they make some fairly big statements about who God is and who we are. If you're really feeling those and really listening to them, there sh- you should get to the point where you're so in awe of what it is that you're talking about that you feel like any words become ridiculous and so you get driven into that apophatic silence but then there should come a point when you're in the apophatic silence where you're so humbled by the fact that God would want to hang out with us that there is a story playing out that we're part of the story where the only true response is not to remain silent anymore it's to say thank you and to recognize who it is that we're that we're in union with and drives you into that uh, that singing again or those liturgical expressions those those things should cycle around if we've got a healthy faith. The problem is that a lot of our churches try to keep us in the cataphatic. They don't enable us to go into that silent place where it's somber and sometimes it doesn't feel so great as we discover ourselves and we discover uh, God. And so people are missing one half of the beauty of Christian spirituality. Which is a spirituality that has space for all of the darkness and all of the pondering and all of the the space, which I think is often, I I, I don't know about you, but I would imagine in your work, particularly as a chaplain um, and just, you know, in the media that you would have encountered, you know, as I have um, dozens and dozens of people who have left faith behind, not because, not because faith was not important, not because, um, not necessarily because they lost their belief, but rather um, the, the box or the framework of spirituality that they had known or had come to understand simply didn't have space for their sorrow or their suffering or their confusion or questions or doubts. That that seems to be um, that seems to be the predominant theme in the stories that I hear. Yeah. Um, that that for a church tradition. A, f- a faith tradition that if you imagine, you know, I mean, kind of like peak Christianity mm. is, is, is Jesus suffering on the cross. Um, and obviously then the resurrection piece, but, um, then the story unfolds into, you know, years of persecution. <laughs> so, so really peak Christianity is, is lots and lots of suffering and not just at an individual level, which I think we, I think we individuate far too often, um, when it comes to, to issues of faith, but at a, but at a corporate communal level, um, and yet, and yet much of our modern spirituality doesn't have room for suffering yeah. or at least is perceived that way. Right. Which is totally, um, which I think is a, 
is a real challenge. It reminds me of the, and I use this all the time, the um, the, um, the rabbinic proverb of the Jewish proverb um, of the uh, of the rabbi who walks with um, with two stones, one in each pocket, and on one is written, um, you know, um, but for me all this was made, and the other stone says, I am but dust mm. and ashes, and this idea that 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 we are both everything and nothing mm. um which is the which is the paradox yeah right? totally and i i i feel sad for people who have encountered pain or they've got big questions and doubts and wonderings and their only their only access to christian spirituality has been through this really narrow lens which is which is ex- wants you to be extremely happy all the time and so they they think that that's it and then they step away so part of what i do when i encounter those people is just helping them to understand that there's this breath to Christian spirituality and tradition that has been around for years and actually some of the best of it has a lot of room for that pain even thinking through the story of the cross and people think it ends at the resurrection with with this wonderful story of 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 life but then if you follow orthodox tradition just a little bit further you get to not not just the risen Jesus who's all amazing you get to the risen Jesus who carries his scars still that's how he proves himself to to Thomas and then that mm. risen Jesus ascends. Now, the story of the ascension is just weird and crazy, but there's still this sense that that, that risen Christ who carries his scars as part of his redeemed body takes that body back to the Godhead somehow. Uh, and so you have the scars of humanity dwelling in the Trinity, which when you think about it is phenomenal. So we talk often talk about healing as taking the pain away. But when I talk to people about what, what makes them feel best when they're going through a tough time in life, it's someone sitting with us and showing that they understand and that they empathize, not necessarily taking the pain away. And there's a healing with that sitting with and empathizing. Yet we so often portray this idea that God doesn't heal like that yet if that's how we feel healed somehow that someone would sit with us then surely god is the best at that uh not the one who necessarily takes the pain away but dwells with us in it profoundly in a way that nobody else possibly could because he's the god he's the god that carries our scars he actually feels the pain and he carries that pain within within himself uh we need spirituality, Christian spirituality, to be able to express that a little deeper than often the tradition that you and I grew up with uh, does. Well, and perhaps the uh, perhaps the tradition that sort of makes it onto TV screens yeah. and movies and caricatures, right? Which yeah. is which is part of the challenge. So, if we, I mean, if we were to talk about healing for a minute. I'm really interested to explore and um, I'm, you know, I don't know if you've resolved this. We haven't talked about this, this subject before, but when it comes to um, the conversation about healing and what healing looks like in Israel, Palestine, was there a point, uh, was there a point um, during the, the faith crisis or after the faith crisis that you've, you know, answered no doubt many of the questions that you had in that time? Um I've probably uh, I have no answers for how the conflict is going to resolve or how it how it should resolve. But I've, I've answered questions about what is what is my involvement uh, look like. But that that goes uh, for that conflict. But it also goes for uh, for everything that I do now. Um, so whether it be sitting down with someone in a chaplaincy situation, sitting down uh, in pastoral care with our people at commoners, what it is that I'm inviting anybody. Uh, into when they become a part of commoners uh, 
it's probably I don't know exactly what things look like now. I don't I don't have a formula for when I sit down with someone or when I get involved in a, in a global situation or respond to a situation. More now, I'm interested in what does my life of unity with that unknown God look like, and then what does it mean for my life to be a natural outflow of that. So when I sit down with someone, I don't I don't have any formula for what I'm working through. I'm actually just listening. Uh, same with a conflict like that. I have no answer for what that conflict looks like but if i get the opportunity to go back it'll just be about listening to people and responding to whatever i see and hear going on with no sense that i can solve the problem so i don't i don't sit down anymore thinking how am i gonna how am i gonna solve this issue it's more a question of how can i sit in this issue with those who are are affected by it how can i listen to them and be with be present with them Mm. Did you experience that when you were going through your own crisis of faith? Were there people who were able to sit in that moment with you or did you find it to be you know, disorienting and did you find alienation? Uh, I found it disorienting. I It was really interesting because it was the year that I got ordained. So uh, I remember going through my ordination interview not long after having that experience and being a lot less certain about some of the answers that I was given, uh, giving. But some, but the people who were interviewing me are also fairly, fairly close and they, they seemed to be able to give room for what I was going through. But I, I decided uh, when I came back that I needed to explore with people who have a contemplative form of spirituality what that could look like. So I went and spent a, a week at a monastery down in the central Hawke's Bay um, and went through their rhythm uh, with them as a way to see what silence, extended silence in particular could look like and how liturgy might feel at, with a daily rhythm. Uh, so those monks were, were a significant part of it for me and seeing and participating and their rhythm. There were times where I, I probably sat in silence for way too long because I was just being gung ho and thought I was going insane. Um, but it was <laughs> it was a good experience. <laughs> I mean, but isn't that? I mean, when we when we begin to learn a new way or a new language or a new, you know, the, anything that we adopt that's new, I think we we tend to have those moments where we run like a bull at a gate. Yeah, right? totally. <laughs> Just <laughs> let's embrace all the silence, which for a radio announcer must have been quite an unusual experience. Oh, it was. Uh, like, I, I, silence for me, as you know, it's all for us, it's all about filling the silence. Silence on the radio is a big no no. Dead air is, is almost seen as demonic. So you've got to, you've got to fill it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I sat there, like I would get up at, uh, 4am, um, when, when I knew that they were getting up and then I would sit in silence for a couple of hours and then I'd go up and do their prayer with them at 6am. And I have a mentally ill mother who hears voices in her head. So I'm always worried whenever there's this conversation going on in my head, uh, just wondering, is this what that, is this what that is? Is this what that feels like and sitting there in silence and you, you often come to it with really romantic notions when you start too. when you start something new like that you've got these very romantic ideas about how it might feel what your head might do so I imagine stillness rather than my head running all over the place so yeah I thought I thought I was going nuts but it was a good it was a good learning experience too about the the humanness of even sitting in silence I mean it takes a lot of discipline doesn't it 
Oh yeah, yeah. I, I get up. I get up at uh, five a.m. every morning. Uh, I head off to the gym at about six, and uh, a good portion in between is is sitting in silence. But my head will go in a million and one different directions. So I have some small techniques that I use to bring my mind back and to slow myself down. Um, but I'm not naturally a morning person, so I do have to have to push myself. Silence is not an easy. It's not an easy thing, uh, especially in a noisy, busy world where we've lost the art of just sitting down and staring out into into space uh, to let our brain do the healing that it needs to do. We distract ourselves all the time. So we fidget, we pull out our phone, we find any way to not be alone with ourselves. So to, to push yourself into that space, take, it does, it takes discipline. Do you, What do you think are the, what are the changes that you've noticed in yourself? What are the What are the things or the spaces or the ideas that are, that have opened up for you or that are, that are available to you now through the practice of silence that, that didn't used to be there? How have you changed? Yeah, yeah I, would, I, I don't want to talk myself up because I'm a good Kiwi, but um, I would say that I listen better than I used to. I'm a lot less interested in my own thought agenda in a conversation and when I'm with people. Um, my wife would, uh, early, early on, she could tell when I had sat in silence and when I hadn't at the beginning of a day. And <laughs> she, would, she would tell me that I was more of a tool, quite noticeably, on those days where I hadn't done it because I would be shorter, I'd be less patient, uh, I'd be a little more agitated, I'd be trying to get through tasks a whole lot, a whole lot quicker. So the silence brings a slowing down. It probably enables me to be a little more sure of myself and what it is that I'm doing. So I'm less uh, less affected by people's complaints about who I am and, and what I do. Uh, so there's probably just a more grounded maturing. And I think that's mostly related to the silence rather than just the passage of time and, and getting older. Uh, I think the silence has just made me a little more confident about who I am, a little more detached from the, the worries of the world. How do you think your idea of God has changed then? Because if you were, if if sitting in silence is changing you, and part of your expression of faith is oneness with God, how how has how has your understanding of God changed mm. by silent being silent? Yeah, it's a good question. I would I would say that he's God is bigger for me now. Um, God is less knowable, less able to be boxed. And because of that, because I don't feel like I'm able to explain God very well in my own spirituality, Jesus has actually become way more important for me. Um, things like the, the poetry of the Psalms has become more significant for me. And knowing that Jesus would have prayed those Psalms has become significant for me. Uh, so before, I probably would have spent most of my Bible time in Paul, wanting to know everything and have all the right answers and be able to explain everything like Paul would, seeing how Jesus interacted with the people around him and how he interacted with his father. Uh, those things are really important for me now. So imagining myself with Jesus through things like Ignatian spirituality, placing myself in Bible stories has become really important. So God bigger, uh, less able to be known, and therefore Jesus more more important, which is really, I find really interesting uh, because before I would have Said, yeah, Jesus is central. Jesus is everything, but really, he wasn't until God became bigger uh, and more unknowable, and that crisis occurred. Then Jesus became really important. 
<laughs> which I, you know, I, I, I enjoy the, I enjoy the humanity of Jesus. I enjoy, mm. I, I enjoy how um, I'm yet to find, I'm yet to personally encounter a story of Jesus that I can't, that, that doesn't in some way um, speak to our current context. Mm. And I yeah. think that's one of the miraculous parts of, of that, which you don't get from, you know, Paul, who's one of the other authors of the New Testament, but you, you don't get that necessarily from Paul. I mean, you get kind of good wisdom and you get good teaching and, and for everybody's freaking out right now, I'm not saying that, that <laughs> Pauline scripture and theology is bad. Well, not all of it. And I'm certainly not saying that, oh, that bit of the Bible is useless and you can throw it out. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is I think the most miraculous part of the the Bible as we know it, the Holy Scriptures, um, is this sto- are the stories of Jesus that miraculously seem to be always relevant and always pertinent. Mm. Um, the person of Jesus seems to be always pertinent to what is happening in our current culture, in our current context, whether you go back a thousand years or 500 years or three weeks ago. And that part is amazing to me, you know, I that's the part that I that I find um, the the relativity of Christ is is remarkable in an age where spirituality is very is very broad and very much embracing the mystery. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I would I would agree, and I, I think that it's because the orth- orthodoxy would state that uh, Jesus is God in the flesh, and uh, it would say that we are created in the image of God, but something there's something broken about about who we are, and so if that's true, then when we look at the person of Jesus, we're seeing humanity as it's meant to be uh, in a in a broken world, and so it would make sense if that is true that every single generation of humanity would find relevance in the in the person of Jesus. And I would say if you want to understand Paul properly and all the other writings of the New Testament, and even if you want to grapple with a lot of the Old Testament, you've got to spend time with Jesus. You don't you don't get to Jesus through Paul, you get to Paul through through Jesus. So at, at Commoners we follow the because we follow the Christian calendar, we use the revised common lectionary uh, to define our Bible readings every every single Sunday. There's always a gospel reading. So and we have a discussion about the gospel reading, and we only ever have a discussion about the gospel reading. You're, we have a psalm read, we have an Old Testament reading, and another New Testament reading. But the focus is always the gospel reading, because I am convinced that if people get to know Jesus well and deeply, uh, and they allow him to, and the stories of him to influence who we are and our lives and how we live, then their lives will look different. The communities around us will look different. Life will make a little more sense for them, and the rest of the Bible will make a little more sense as well. I think I agree with you about eighty percent on that. Mm. About eighty percent, which is which is fine. I mean, that's that's pretty good actually for me to agree with anybody <laughs> about eighty percent. Um, but the uh, I think I th- I th- I think you're I think you're right. The other thing that I think is often um, often underrated is um, is the the human experience and the divine encounters. Mm. Um, that are captured in in Psalms um, and also in Proverbs. But I used, to, you know, I used to always say like, there's everything that's true about the human experience and everything that is true about our, our possible interactions with with God 
are found in the Psalms. And so if you want to, I, you know, I do think that there's an opportunity to, through reading the Psalms, through reading those those pieces of ancient pro- poetry and prayers, and even into Proverbs, you know, into, you know, the world's collective ancient wisdom, uh, I think it makes it so much easier to recognize then, you know, the truth and the wisdom of Jesus when you when you encounter yeah, it. So that that's that's my twenty percent chip. Oh in. no, that's 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 not a twenty percent disagreement though, because I, I entirely agree, which is why when I'm talking people's uh, personal devotional life, I really encourage praying the Psalms because in there you will encounter your humanity and you will encounter the prayers of Jesus uh, as well. So yeah, we're we're very much in agreement. It's just about what the focus is for us on a on a Sunday. <laughs> Well, okay. All right. You turn that one back around on me. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I like, um, I like, I like Bonhoeffer does this real, he's got this really good little book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the, on the Psalms. And he talks about praying through the Psalms relatively methodically that when you get to a Psalm, even if it doesn't feel like you at the moment, pray that Psalm anyway, because that Psalm is going to be the prayer of someone in the world. And it's always going to be the prayer mm-hmm. of Jesus. So when you connect with that Psalm, if it's a Psalm that talks about feeling like rubbish and you're not feeling like rubbish somebody else's and jesus certainly did in in his ministry so when you pray that you're connecting with both of those well and that's speaking right to that individuation thing that i that i brought up earlier you know like individuation i think it has has it's probably both a terrible thing and a beautiful thing for modern christianity in that uh, we've become so obsessed with everything having to have a personal meaning for me, um, with this individual, with the, the an individual kind of faith lens on, which is not to say that that's not appropriate and not accurate and not meaningful, but I do think we have we've lost an enormous sense of exactly what Bonhoeffer is really trying to get to, which is to embrace our collective mm. spirituality, um, which I guess in some respects takes me all the way back to you know sitting in the in the cave of the nativity where you know when you it's it's only through engaging with a collective spirituality that you can feel the burden and the wounds of you know so many different people groups that are so so deeply connected to our own to our own spiritual story mm. um at least for me that's that's where I, that's that's where i have sat and wrestled with that particular conflict you know the idea that there is ongoing uh, there is ongoing trauma and crisis in the world that I am connected to because I am part of the human story in this time and place on earth. For me, the moment was um, in Haiti um, about four months after the large quake in 2010 and sitting on a rooftop, um, you know, l- looking over, there was a, a Catholic school um, that was right in front of the the house that we were staying in and and I just remember sitting, feeling, I, I guess, some of those same feelings that you felt, um, a sense of uselessness, um, but also a sense of um, not being able to, um, I couldn't I couldn't justify turning my eyes off. You know, I couldn't justify switching my attention elsewhere. I think, you know, we live in a playground for, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, we live in a playground for, for Enneagram 7s. Um, of which I'm not, <laughs> but um, I, I'm definitely down the I'm definitely down the four end of the scale. I do enjoy my my melancholy and introspection. Um, but you know, we live in a playground for sevens. There's constant distraction. There's the constant ability to find something to make ourselves happy or to give us the illusion of happiness for a moment. Um, 
and you can and you can bounce from moment of happiness to moment of happiness um you know kind of chasing your bliss as we might say um which you know is a it can be a relatively productive way of escaping pain and yet i think there's something in holding our collective human pain which is really important to our to our development as people i think you know for me when it comes to um, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. How do you how do you live in a contemplative tradition, but then also um, be motivated by and take action around causes of justice that require some mm. doing? I, I think the uh, contemplative tradition makes you do it. Uh, so there's this there's this wrong image I think people have of things like contemplation and and mindfulness that is just about you sitting alone in your room, uh, getting your kumbaya on with yourself and God, and that and that just being it. But good if we if we're truly sitting somehow with God, whether we feel like it or not, then he's got this he's got this amazing story playing out, and it's go, you're going to be compelled again cycling through that cataphatic and apophatic tradition. You're going to be compelled back out into the world. So uh, the contemplative tradition has made me, I think, more able to participate in, in the work of justice, which is why I ultimately planted a local church, because I was good with being involved in the global stuff. But again, it was at a distance. And so I think the contemplative, that push into the contemplative compelled me to get involved much closer. Uh, I couldn't keep doing it. I would eventually burn out if I didn't have have the the practices of silence and mindfulness and and listening but i think ultimately if it's truly contemplative it will make you hear the world it will make you see other people's pain and it'll make you want to sit in it with them uh, if it doesn't then you haven't actually got contemplative spirituality you've just got that uh, individuation of mindfulness which i think is probably the most i like i could take that snippet and just be like, okay, yeah, cool. I mean, that's it. Story mm. done, right? And I, I, I hear the passion dial up in your voice. I hear you starting to like. I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you felt that, but to me anyway, I started to, you know, to 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 hear the the actions that start to bubble up, which is mm. always fascinating to me. Do you think? Do you think you could have um, discovered this pathway or gone down this track? Um, any other way, or was was that experience of crisis what it yeah, took? Yeah, that's an interesting question too. Because I I teach this stuff now to other people who some of them have hit crisis mode and some of them haven't, and even the ones who haven't, it's begun to to reshape their life. Uh, as I said, it was an intellectual curiosity for me. I, I think I might have tapped into it, but I think it, it probably would have been a more selfish endeavor. So I don't know I if I, I think I would have discovered some of the meditative practices. I don't know if I would have discovered the stuff that I just sounded passionate about, that cyclical contemplative nature, which says if it's truly contemplative spirituality, it will throw you back out into the world, but it will be more sustainable. So I might have got a nice selfish little meditation going on. I don't know if I would have got true contemplative spirituality without the crisis that that made it a need uh, because I still wanted to be involved in the world. I just didn't know what that was going to going to look like. Mm. So do you think, I, I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question 
I think for anybody to consider, but especially for somebody like yourself who, you know, a you have a voice as one of those truth tellers. You're in the media yourself, you know, hosting talkback. Mm. So uh, on the front lines of conversation, um, you, you you speak to and and care for and shepherd other people who are in that truth telling kind of uh, capacity and and then you, you know you're leading a community as well and I guess my uh, you know question that I have to consider as somebody who you know is a is a leader and who works with people I hate that word leader it's so <laughs> yes yeah, <same>. bland <laughs> it's so bland right but as somebody who's working with you know shepherding people um, through life and getting close to people's pain um, do you think that in in a Western world where we live relatively high up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm. um, do you think do you think there's almost a cause or a need to go chasing those kind of um, those kind of crisis experiences um, in order to find this kind of you know deeply truthful personal growth? Yeah, yeah. There, there seems to be, uh, and that, and that we've talked about the deconstruction of faith. There, there also seems to be some of that's really healthy and good. And then there's stuff in there that I don't think is. I think people can get lost in that deconstruction, and there's this sense of positive martyrdom about it, where people take a lot of identity from being in the in the deconstruction. And so I've. Yeah, I think there's a, there's an element where people go pursuing crisis, but I think that's because we haven't actually noticed our own brokenness. I mean, we live in a society where um, because I get to deal with people in that pain, I know how many people are medicated uh, to deal with anxiety and, and depression, uh, high blood pressure, uh, various, various other things. So the crisis is obviously there. I think we've just lost the art of listening to ourselves really well to find the brokenness, um, which is where I think things like the Christian traditions are around confession are really healthy and good because they provide an opportunity when they're not abused for us to sit, to listen, to discover the brokenness, to see that actually we already have that need for God. We don't need to throw ourselves in, into crisis to, to find it. So there's a little bit of me that wishes that I had been in a tradition that taught me to do that rather than having to sit in a place like the, the West Bank and have it all fall apart. How long did the falling apart last? Oh, I would say it's still going on, um, but uh, but it's got a different direction now. So that that actual feeling of uh, of lostness, uh, uselessness, helplessness that probably only lasted a, a few months until I started to get some of those rhythms uh, built into built into my life. But coming back to that sense of uselessness and helplessness from time to time is actually really healthy. So I'd say there's an element where it still goes on. It just has there's some structure wrapped around it now. Some foundations that enable it to have a positive uh, effect rather than rather than a negative well which i think is i mean the the key to healthy deconstruction which is a, which is in itself a transformative process um you know i i believe there's probably far too many people who jump into deconstruction without realizing that the best way to deconstruct is with a map mm. you know you, you've got to you've got to determine what your purpose is in taking this thing apart and and to understand as you examine the pieces, you know, what is it that's still meaningful? What is it that I need to hold on to? You know, and I think whether your deconstruction is in, you know, as in, as in whole, um, as it is for so many, or in part, you know, as it was, I think for you, you know, I would say you partially deconstructed. Mm. Um, 
But I think the difference is, is that you very quickly found a map um, and you found a framework that you could, you know, process and think through and pause and then reapply mm. would would I would I guess be my external observation of that of, of what you've what you've described yeah. and and helping people find find those roadmaps and pathways through deconstruction I think is you know I, that's something that I I mean that's that's essentially what I what I do and where I found a sense of um, to lean into to lean into my evangelical roots you know that's where I found a sense of call is to actually help people um, to help people go on those transformation journeys um, to find other ways either through um, you know either empowering people through crisis and trauma experiences or helping them to combat the fears before the fears surface because I think that's the other part right you either you encounter crisis as you did sitting in the West Bank um, or crisis naturally emerges because your 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 interior and your exterior worlds are kind of destined to collide mm. um, or to align. <laughs> and if they align, it's a beautiful thing. Um, if they collide, you know there can often be some 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 grief along the way. Mm. So thankfully, I because of my upbringing, I uh, my mother had church hopped, uh, so I, I had experienced every part of the the Christian tradition, right from swinging in the rafters, barking in the aisles, literally Pentecostal, uh, through to Catholic, everything in between, little stint in the Mormon church. So when I came to the deconstruction, I knew that things were broader than what I was experiencing. So there was a tool belt available to me, which is what I see a lot of people don't have. And it's what I'm interested in giving them is saying, okay, so this is what you've experienced of the Christian tradition, wherever it might be in that in that spectrum. You only see these tools here and they haven't worked for you. But actually, if you look across the whole spectrum, there are a whole lot of tools available available to you. Let's let's find out what might help you along this journey a little bit to put that map together that you talked about. Which I think is is really lovely. And obviously, you know, it goes back to that idea of, you know, there is spaciousness. You know, this is a this is a big, wide and broad tradition in it. And there's room for much more than often what people experience when they're either growing up or what they see on TV. So um what are some of the ways that you that you are, you know, doing that or helping or hoping to facilitate that kind of journey? Well, it would be in the in the things that I do. So that just that very simple idea of sitting down with someone over coffee or if they don't drink coffee a tea or a hot chocolate or something and listening to what goes what goes on for them the simplicity of that i think is central to almost the whole of our humanity being able to sit with other people listen hear, and then throw a little bit of who we are into the mix for them as well truly being present and giving something of ourselves if i was to look at everything that i do whether it be talking on the radio uh, the chaplaincy commoners that's actually all it comes down to is being present to other people and giving them something of of myself it is that simple if people wanted to track you down where would the, where would the best place be to find you uh on on the internet you know or in real life if you're brave enough i haven't given out my home address yet, <laughs> yeah. one never knows i'm not giving out my home address but if you go to if you go to commoners.church you can find where we meet in uh, hamilton new zealand if you're ever around the city uh otherwise online i'm very easy to find on facebook just search for francis ritchie and i have a website francis-ritchie.com but i don't do much on that anymore so yeah and Instagram as well. <laughs> um, just before we say goodbye, um, any 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 changes on the horizon for you? Is there is there is there something that you're that you're muddling on? Are you in a cycle of um, cataphatic or 
Apophatic. Um, apophatic. Uh, oh, look, I, I'm trying to get more more radio time, uh, podcasting possibly as well, but that's kind of contingent on whether I get more radio time or not. Uh, I have a, a short show on Sunday evening that I quite enjoy, but I'd like a bigger bigger chunk so I could actually dive into some more, just some more talk and evolve conversations a, a little bit more. Uh, so there's that, but that that's in the hands of other people. So that'll that'll determine a lot whether we're able to land that or not. <laughs> so so relatively silent until you get a chance to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been it's been a real pleasure and I've enjoyed the conversation and the the opportunity to kind of, you know, walk through some of the some of the history of my of my own faith journey and to consider, you know, what what that looks like in a in a modern context. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, and thank you for for hosting such a rich, wonderful conversation. I'm really looking forward to listening to uh, other episodes too. And to hear some of your story that we haven't had a chance to sit down and unpack was really good. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and TashMcGill.com.